Welcome to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with Lee Jackson. Hi, and welcome to Get Good at Presenting, the podcast with myself, Lee Jackson. I've got a very special UK election version of the podcast today because I've got with me a friend and colleague of mine, Graham Davies. Graham is known as a presentation coach, or the presentation coach is his branding, and he is known specifically for coaching a lot of politicians. So I thought it'd be really interesting to sort of talk about how politicians do their speeches and is it different to a normal speaking, you know, business speaking and, and that kind of stuff. I thought that'd be really good timing to that. So we'll try not to make it party political. I think it's fair to say that me and Graham may have be on different sides of the fence uh, politically, but that makes half the fun, doesn't it, Graham? It certainly does, Trotsky. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So we, we, are, we have a lot of banter. We text each other a lot during political debates and it's all good natured stuff isn't it graham mostly except when you really really upset me like of course but that's all <laughs> it's all part of the thing so graham i mean obviously obviously half of my work is presentation coaching i do a lot of it so when i'm not speaking i'm you know coaching others but how did you get into having that bit of a niche i guess with politicians how did that happen well i was very lucky in that a very large proportion of my friends from university decided to go into politics and they knew that maybe public speaking wasn't necessarily their strength and it has always been one of mine. So when they started going through the selection process to try to become a Conservative Party candidate, they approached me and asked for some help, not only in how to create a speech, but how to deliver it in the very exacting circumstances of the Tory selection process. And I realized in the early 2000s that the selection process was getting more and more professional. And I realized that there was very much a niche I could I could explode into. And I've ruthlessly done that for the last 19 years. Wow. So you've you kind of found a niche through your contacts and that kind of thing. And can you explain maybe to some of the listeners, what would be the difference between, say, me pitching for a business or doing a presentation and actually political speaking? I mean, I've got a few ideas in my head. I'm just interested well, if you know. there are two big things, two big headlines that, yeah. that appear to me. Number one, a political candidate has to try and get across a combination of his own personality and his own views while at the same time being compatible with what's known as the party line, the party manifesto, the, the party's way of doing and saying things. So he or she is always walking along quite a difficult tightrope there. But secondly, and perhaps marvellously when it comes to political speaking, political speaking hasn't been infected by that dreadful disease, the PowerPoint pandemic. There is no such thing as a slide-driven presentation in politics, and I think that's a jolly good thing. I completely agree with you there. Could you imagine anything worse than, uh, you know, on Newsnight? Can I just talk through these slides now? Page, page <laughs> by bullet point by both Tories and socialists. I can't <laughs> imagine a worse way of the country coming to an end. Can you imagine uh, this is page 74 of the manifesto? Let's just read this paragraph together. That would be really bad, isn't it? So so obviously there's – I mean, I have coached one politician in my life, and they were going for the candidacy of MP, of candidate, and they won. So I was really pleased to be involved in that. It's not something I've particularly gone for, but that nuance of what you said 
often in my presentation coaching, I'm teaching people to be, I guess, themselves to bring out their personality. But with political speaking, you can't do too much of that, can you? You probably can't. You hope to bring enough of your personality out so that people do remember you as a personality and do remember you, hopefully as a human being rather than as a politician, but not so much of a maverick that you peer out of step with party politics. I mean, a person who classically was massively out of step with the party that supposedly under whose colours he was elected relatively recently was Rory Stewart. Obviously, a remarkable character, a remarkable individual, and some would argue a remarkable human being, but completely incompatible with being a conservative in the medium to long term, because frankly, his views are so clearly not compatible with those of other members of the Conservative Party. Yeah, that's right. And I think, is he applying to be uh, London mayor, I think, now? I think he is, but very definitely as an independent. Oh, I see, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I think he famously, did he take his jacket off or took his tie off or something? That was one of his famous things, wasn't it? Well, his jacket off, his tie off, and in the last leadership debate on television, the BBC had very helpfully supplied all the candidates with the sort of stool that you can't sit on with any dignity. And Rory Stewart decided to embrace (laughs) that position by, uh, how shall I put it, without wanting to offend your listeners, displaying his manhood rather vigorously in a certain position. And so he's somebody who doesn't like to stick with convention. And that is something that may well stand him in good stead as an independent. But I think he would always find it very difficult sticking to any party line, no matter what party he becomes a member of in the future. Yeah, and he was, of course, he was quite a moderate, wasn't he? So he probably wasn't with the kind of policies of the drift of the general party, I guess, as well. There was a lot of stuff going on there, wasn't there? There was. I I sometimes wonder whether, in fact, Stuart had join the Conservative Party, perhaps. I'm not saying as a marriage of convenience, but it seemed to be the direction that was the same as his in 2015. But of course, other people have made the decision to take the party in a different direction to the one that he wants to go down. And he's gone, frankly, down in a a radically different direction to the majority of the party. Yeah. Was it was it him that was the uh, tutor to, to Prince Harry or something? I think that he was, was him. Wasn't he was also, let me get this right, a governor of a province in Afghanistan as well and <laughs> had certain other activities that he carried out for Her Majesty's government outside of the country. He had quite yeah. an interesting background. Fascinating. So, so you must meet some interesting characters when you when you come across it. Do you work, I guess, on referrals? Do people refer you to and you get a phone call from a new politician or in this country i work only for the conservative party i do happen to be a conservative but but also trotsky it is the party that has the most money fortunately i'm delighted to say (laughs) but in other countries there are various different specialist agencies and consultancies that hire people like me to coach politicians in other countries and i could be much more eclectic in my choice of client there but it does tend to be mainly through referrals because it's such a specialized niche yeah i understand so obviously you live in london is all of this stuff done face to face in and around westminster the vast majority of it is done in london but interestingly i do most of my coaching of politicians even up to cabinet level in my apartment in kensington which is about 20 minutes to the tube away from the palace of westminster The reason for that is, obviously, it's more convenient for me to do it at home, but also within the very tight little world of the Conservative Party, people sort of know me and know my face and know what I do. 
my clients don't necessarily want to be seen with me because I have perhaps the same sort of social cachet as a venereal disease doctor. People think that, oh, if he's been seen with Graham Davis, he must be a weak presenter and have really poor speaking skills because obviously that's what he's brought Graham in for. So a lot of my clients politically don't necessarily ever want to be seen with me. I see. So you're you're kind of like a James Bond MI5 (laughs) character. I'm a legend in my own website. Yes, yes. And all professional speakers, right? That's the kind of thing. So, okay, that's really interesting. So for professional development for a member of parliament, this is part of what they do. They need to be a good presenter, but almost that is seen as something that you wouldn't want to be seen in public. You know, you would want to see development. There is a parallel between being a senior politician and a senior corporate executive. People assume that if you're the sales director, the managing director, the finance director, the chief executive, people assume that because you're in that role, you must therefore necessarily be a good public speaker. But just because you've been appointed to that position doesn't mean that you are. But fortunately, by the time you are in that position, you've probably got a budget to hire someone like you or me to make sure that is indeed the case. But of course, in the House of Commons, they get the chance to speak under pressure in front of some pretty exacting audiences a lot of the time. And the very fact that they're doing that improves them. The way that I look at public speaking in whatever context, whether it's corporate or political, is that it's not a science. It's not as precise and calculating as that. It's not an art. It's not just something that you're born with. It's a sport. It's something that some people have an innate skill at, but they only get really good at it if they do it a lot and if they get a lot of coaching and practice with some specific techniques giving them to me to them by an outsider. And that hopefully is where you and me come in. Very good. Yeah, excellent. So let's get through some of the kind of practicalities because when I see political speeches, and I've seen quite a few of them, some cracking ones and some really, really bad ones. My favourite bad one, which I may have mentioned on the podcast before, is the famous one by your friend Liz Truss. Um, (laughs) Now, what was bad about that one? Tell me about that. Well, the Liz Truss was at the Conservative Party conference 2014, I think it was, where she was pausing and smiling in random places. And she got very excited about cheese at one point. We import two thirds of our cheese and that is a disgrace. There was something about that. It was, yeah, it, it felt to me like she'd, really been overcoached for that one you know well of course when somebody looks as if they're overcoached when it looks as if say for instance there's almost like a direction on the page pause here and smile after the third word in this sentence if it looks like somebody is doing that in fact the problem isn't overcoaching it's actually undercoaching and under rehearsal in order to look unrehearsed and spontaneous and natural You've got to rehearse a lot so you get through that stiltedness barrier, as one might call it. And frankly, when you're speaking in front of 5,000 people in a conference hall, plus, say, half a million people watching on TV at home, you really should rehearse it as much as you possibly can, because rehearsal is the best way of making sure that you've got a really good chance of making an impact. Yeah, which is really interesting because we this is probably maybe out of us, you know, our kind of fun political differences. Um, this is probably the one which is why I'm glad you're on the show, where we probably differ slightly in our techniques. Ah, because 
Yeah, because I, I'm not I'm not very keen for people to over rehearse because right. because I've seen people not only ingrain bad habits, but actually they never get through the barrier of being stilted. They often just ah. it just sounds like rote. You know, they write. I was coaching someone a few weeks ago and and, and this person basically wrote wrote everything out word for word. And I was trying to explain to them. No, the written word is different to the spoken word. So yes. you need to be careful about that. So how do you, you know, so so for me, I'll get people to rehearse parts of the speech, like the beginning of it, the ending of it, certain stories, certain key points, but not not do it the whole way through just in case they lose their place and then okay. pass. Do you know what I mean? One of the so, problems about that approach, in my experience, and I, and I respect your experience in doing it your way, one of the problems is that if they're saying a particular sequence of words for the very first time in front of that crucial audience of hundreds of people, if they're saying it for the first time, even very accomplished chief executives suddenly go inside themselves under the pressure of the lights and those several hundred people staring at them in judgmental silence. And that yeah. often leads to them actually going through a personality bypass and them doing things in a monotone. I've found that the only way to make sure that they put expression and life and energy into it is so that they become really comfortable with those words and mm. really comfortable with injecting that energy. And that's where I feel that going through the barrier is essential to do in the rehearsal process rather than leaving it to luck on the day. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I, I think, I think well, I've never heard you talk about the barrier before, so I thought, that encourages me because I'm, I don't want people just to maybe some people don't get through that barrier with politics you have to because there's a lot yes. at stake yes i mean every speech on some level could mean the end of their career would you agree yes conceivably yes if they've chosen the wrong material with the wrong emphasis and delivered it badly in the circumstances all of those things could be semi-fatal but especially on the political front and often on the corporate front as well over many many years of coaching people through it i've seen dozens of speeches fail through under rehearsal i've never seen a speech fail because of over rehearsal <laughs> that's really interesting because i took the liz trust thing as over rehearsal yes and, and I, 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 I would see it as the opposite and yeah that's really interesting okay so let's let's look at some of the practicalities of this do you coach people for speeches inside the house of commons and outside the house of commons it's mainly outside the house of commons historically i've coached clients for their maiden speeches because of course that's very very important the very first speech you ever do in the house of commons i've also coached them for major statements as cabinet ministers or for instance when they're winding up a major no confidence debate when possibly it's going to be covered by quite a large viewing audience on television so it tends to only be the big set pieces in Parliament that I have anything to do with, mainly the coaching and writing and editing that I'm doing is for speeches outside of Parliament. OK, fascinating. So do you write speeches or do you just coach speeches, Graham? Well, I'm not a good writer, but I am a good sharpener, finisher, editor. The way I look, like to think of it is that often the politician or several members of their staff will create the basic furniture i will provide the french polish 
that makes it ready to actually go into the shop window, the shop window being the actual delivery on the day. I know that I'm not a good creator, but I am a good finisher. And I coach them on how to present that final product. Well, that's interesting. When they come to your, you know, your office stroke house to do this yes. privately, like you said, are they coming with an aid or with assistance or usually on their own? That varies quite a lot. There are some people that like <laughs> like to see me on their own and they, and they almost don't like to reveal to their staff that they're seeing me. There are some that bring the entire entourage. They'd probably bring a helicopter as well if they had the chance. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things about politicians is they never seem to be alone. Very rarely. They're always followed around by someone with a clipboard, I've always, in my experience. <laughs> That's true. But one, one, one of the good things about that is they, they choose those people very carefully. And those people get into the knack of being a sounding board and a friendly but sometimes sceptical audience for run-throughs of the speech and so that's when it's actually very useful to have a miniature entourage around you okay do you think that that it makes the difference maybe with a political speech and a say a business presentation is the use of auto cues so so often often there's two screens isn't there one on the left one on the right conferences and things and they're looking left and right to see their words do you work with that kind of situation yes i do and the use of teleprompters is a very specialist genre in itself. Now, if we take the last two Conservative Party conferences, the last one was at Manchester, and that big hall at the GMEX has got all the atmosphere of a disused Zeppelin hangar from World <laughs> War I. Just True. a horrendous place. No atmosphere whatsoever. And they create an artificial stage, and they put these artificial stands up there. And indeed, in front of three of the stands, there's actually not just two teleprompt plasma screens they usually have three so you've got one on the left one in the middle and one on the right and so you have to get into the knack of looking at all three of them depending on the phase of the speech but actually you'll probably still want to use the central teleprompt screen about 70 percent of the time because really 70 maybe even 80 percent of the time you'll want to be looking straight ahead because that's where the main camera feed is for television companies. But the previous year, the Tory party, I don't mind saying this in your podcast, made a bit of a mistake because they decided when they used the uh, Birmingham International Conference Centre, which is one of the best conference venues, I think, in the world in all all the contexts in which I've spoken or coached people, where the main symphony hall has got the main body in the ground, the stalls, and it's got two levels, two levels of, of, of balcony, as it were. Now, they decided to just use the very cheap teleprompt plasma screens that I've described that they used in Manchester. Whereas four or five years ago in Birmingham, they used what I call a wraparound plasma screen. Oh. What that is, is it wraps around at eye level around the outside edge of the first floor balcony and the words appear on that strip at your eye level or just slightly above your eye level and they're huge the words and it means that when you look around the room you literally cannot lose sight of the words of your speech and it's incredibly liberating because you're making eye contact with literally everybody in the room and the tv screen and your script at the same time it actually sets people free. 
but it is expensive and the party were too penny pinching to use it last time they were in Birmingham and I think it was a big mistake yeah yeah I saw something quite similar recently I was at a conference and the there was a main screen you know with the person on it or the slides or whatever but then above that was the ability to put some words Mm. of course they used it mainly for putting registration numbers of cars that needed to be moved you know but (laughs) You know, there was kind of song lyrics and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of technology out there. But I, but I guess you can't – this stuff's rehearsed. You know, it'll be checked. It'll be rehearsed. But yes. do you help people – you know, if that technology would fail, and occasionally it might do. Yes. Do, do you prepare people for technology failure? Absolutely. I always make sure they've got a full copy of the speech on the lectern in front of them just in case. And also they have a second full copy in their pocket just in case so i believe in i leave in double redundancy especially for political speeches yeah yeah okay so let me think about some so one of the political speeches that stood out for me was the famous cameron speech where just after became the leader of the tory party i believe and the famous one where he took his jacket off do you remember that one now let's see would that have been you talking about during tory party conference yeah, and he sort of did this whole thing of like, let me just tell you how it is. And he took his jacket off and rolled I have to up say, the- I believe that was a bit of a cliche, a bit of a mistake. Yeah. Because I think that, although it might have been new to politics, it had been done many times before in the corporate world. And I thought it actually cheapened his, the whole ideas that he was trying to get across there. Also, bringing it forward, during the leadership election between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, Jeremy Hunt... I don't know whether he came out with this idea on his own or whether he was advised to do it. During the whole hustings process, he decided to do it with his jacket off and with his sleeves literally rolled up. He looks scruffy and ridiculous. If you want to look like a prime minister, you've got to dress like a prime minister. A prime minister doesn't go on stage with his sleeves rolled up, looking sweaty and unprepared. Yeah, I heard also that... People reckon that after that David Cameron speech, that was when he nailed the nomination, basically. They reckon that that speech... Ah, okay, well, uh, you might be getting mixed up with this. Maybe ah. correct me if I'm... During the 2005 party conference, which was just after the Tories lost a third general election very badly, they had the party hustings. And when there were five candidates, they each had 10-minute slots during the course of the conference. Oh, okay, maybe that's it, and yeah. what he did was... I don't think it was the taking the jacket off that made the impression. What he did was he did his speech not using a lectern and he memorized it word for word. He'd rehearsed like hell for a couple of weeks, that speech, honed it down, rehearsed it, rehearsed it, rehearsed it. It was the first time that anybody at Tory party conference had got rid of the lectern and spoke straight into the eyes of the audience. It was the fact that he'd learned it and said it word for word brilliantly and with enormous conviction and just, uh, frankly, weapons-grade delivery. That's what won in the leadership. Anybody else who was just reading their speech off an A4 script on a lectern had no chance, specifically David Davis, who didn't rehearse his speech at all, just read it with his eyes down 85% of the time. He was absolutely blown away by Cameron in the final vote. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's that's must be what I was thinking. Obviously, my Conservative Party history is not 
too sharp, Graham, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and long may that remain so, Lee. Of course. But let, let's just bring some political balance to this just before we move on. Cause I want to talk to you about lectins in a moment. But it was actually Der- Jeremy Corbyn a couple of years ago who was using the teleprompter and actually said the word pause. Do you remember yes. that? He also said, good laugh here. <laughs> that was that was a stage direction. Now, I had to feel for the chap because that was very early on in his leadership. I suspect that in his political career up to that point, he'd literally never used a teleprompter before. And here's one of the, the realities, which I'm sure is true for Labour Party politicians as it is for Tory Party politicians. Much as there might be coaches for either parties, people like me around, although often there isn't, one of the things that you never have enough time to do is to practice in the venue or to practice with the actual autocue. Yeah. He may not indeed have, have used that teleprompt ever before because there simply wasn't time. One of the reasons why Cameron eventually became very good at using a teleprompt was that at Tory party conference, the three or four days of the conference, he didn't go to any of the drinks receptions or the glad handing situations that many parties do go to. He spent three days in his suite with his own teleprompt system and his own teleprompt operator tweaking, sharpening and rehearsing his speech for three solid days as if it was an event in the Olympics. That's why he's so good at it, because he looked at it professionally like a sporting event and he left nothing to chance. Wow, that's uh, that's quite something. If only if only he was as good at working out referendums, eh, Graham? Yes, uh, indeed. Well, there we are. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, so, he, he may he may not be the the referendum king, but he will always be the teleprompter king. That's uh, very good. So, give us the names of for the listeners, maybe two or three people that they can that they can have a look at who you think are good politicians who make good speeches. On a fairly regular basis, uh, who, who would you say that good to look at? Well, obviously, I'm a bit biased about some of these. Michael sure. Gove is somebody who has a background, of course, as a writer, as a journalist. Yeah. And you can tell that in the way that he creates the word flow in the speeches that he makes. But you can also tell that he rehearses them. And you can also tell that there's a level of both calculation and spontaneity in the way that he says it. And the other thing that Gove has that is very, very unusual, it's an unusual weapon that many politicians are very wary of because they don't have access to it themselves. He has a wicked sense of humour. And, of course, that makes him stand out very positively from amongst his colleagues. And especially when he's been saying something serious, if he comes in with a dart of comedy, it has a huge impact because it's so unexpected. Yeah. Interesting. So there's um, there's also the serious side of the politicians. A lot of my time, I'm trying to get people to loosen up. I'm trying to get them to be less robotic, less script, less PowerPoint. You know, I'm trying to get them to be more themselves. But obviously, as a politician, and you mentioned Gove and others, they sometimes have to deliver bad news. They sometimes yeah. have to comment. You know, for instance, you know, I, I, I believe you don't live too far, like from the Grenfell place right that's a very good example you're right you know so so how you know what advice do you give them and what's your thoughts about when because you can't make a quip and a joke when it's something very serious is that a different skill delivering serious news let's say for instance i mean let's let's take that situation to its extreme when there was a 
a day of, of Grenfell debate in the House of Commons. And obviously, there were people from all the major parties speaking during that debate. Now, of course, obviously, you're not trying to inject any humour or indeed any real personality during the course of that. But nevertheless, there are things that need to be said, mainly, of course, to see what lessons can be learned from that tragedy and to make sure that it does never happen again. When you're talking in that sort of atmosphere, the requirements are very different. Instead of, for instance, when Gove is at his best in a conflict situation, he is very good at making his speeches a veritable roller coaster, up and down and around and left and right and here and there, making yeah. it a varied emotional experience. In a Grenfell-type scenario, you actually have to have one tone nearly all the time. I hesitate to say the word monotone, but really the sort of the graph of your speech should be very flat because for it not to be flat and understated would actually be very incongruous the mood of the people around you and also with the mood of the people who are watching on television. So you have to be at the other end of the emotional scale when you're in a situation like that. Yeah, that's that's really good advice and, and also good advice for anyone who has to deliver you know redundancies and like for instance there was a, that terrible tragedy at Alton Towers a couple of years ago yes. and the Alton Towers the PR people and the CEO they have to come out and deliver you know bad news to the public and you know that in itself is a skill isn't it really it is a skill the other very difficult scenario is when delivering a eulogy at a funeral I very much advise people to precisely script a eulogy because and also rehearse it as much as they can. The main reason being that if it's a good eulogy and it does justice to the deceased, that person who's delivering the eulogy will feel a lot of emotion, especially at certain phases of what yeah. he or she is saying. And they really do have to practice feeling those emotions in advance during the rehearsal so they don't get overwhelmed by those emotions when there are 200 people watching them in the church and in those circumstances i very much recommend not only that they rehearse and instead of normally suggesting to every client that they spend as much time looking into the eyes of the audience even when they're using a script when you're doing a eulogy i think a lot of the time it's a safer option to spend much more time looking down at your script because sometimes just making eye contact with a particular person and seeing them bursting into tears may actually make you lose control. And that's the last thing that anybody in the audience wants. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I've delivered three eulogies in my life, and they are the only talks that I've written out word for word. Uh, I think it's special. Yeah. And uh, they were quite something. You know, the, the last one I did was was our colleague Joy Marsden, of course, in in, of course. in yeah, and so I delivered that one. And, yeah, and I, I was very emotional at the end of it. And because it was a different venue and what I hadn't worked out, of course, delivering that eulogy, I hadn't worked out in my head that her her children and her family were on the front row. Of course. That's what I'd not worked out, you know. And actually, I should have looked maybe over their heads, really. But uh, that's towards – just it was just towards the end I got very emotional. But, uh, you know, I think people – are quite forgiving at funerals and of course there's nothing wrong with a bit of emotion is there you know there isn't um, the, and, and in fact obviously it's a glorious thing in a because the funeral is as much for the living as it is for the dead and it can be a cathartic and liberating experience for everybody but of course 
And the most important thing is to make sure that the emotion doesn't take full control and that you are in control of it. Yeah, very good. Very good. So just last kind of maybe the last little question I want to ask you, Graeme, because this is this is some great stuff here. I And that is the use of lectins, right? I Ooh. personally, I hate lectins. The reason I hate them is because I think it's good for people because you lose 60 percent of your body language behind a lectin. You lose a lot of that stuff and it becomes obviously a more stilted and like a political speech, I guess, where most business presentations, they want a bit more freedom. People can move around. They can engage a little bit more. So how do you get people to use a lectin well without it becoming like the white knuckle ride and a, a prison for their because it often people hang on to them for dear life, don't they? <laughs> lectins. First of all, you have to use the right type of lectin and it has to be a lectin which isn't one of those ones which looks like a sort of bulletproof shield. It should be just a very thin stick with a relatively small flat bit on top so that it's not acting as a barrier between the speaker and the audience. So it's, so it's more, no. of a, more of a music stand almost. It's than more a of a music lectern. stand. In fact, I've got a, a mobile lectern made of plastic. It's made by an organization called RAT, R-A-T. It's a rat stand. And it's so light, I can carry it to other people's offices for clients. And sometimes I've even taken it to events when I know that there's not uh, a lectern available. And for various reasons, either me or a client needs that lectern. And also, it can act, its height can be adjusted, and it can be put into a, a shoulder-carrying bag. So that's a great thing. But it's not a barrier between the speaker and the audience. Secondly, you mentioned about the white knuckle thing. I tell clients that they should treat the lectern as if it is covered with sulfuric acid or it's electrified they (laughs) mustn't touch the lectern they should present from behind it if they want to using it as a place to perch notes or to perch their script but they must present from behind it as if the lectern is not there they must not grip it because inevitably as you say the white knuckle grabbing hunches them over it alters the whole demeanor and strangles their voice and their ability to make eye contact and impact with the audience. So if you're going to use a lectern, you have to sort of use it as if it sort of is not there. Ah, that's really interesting. Yeah, because, of course, most lecterns I've seen, you know, like I'm speaking at a university next week to, to staff, not students. And like university lectures, I mean, the, these things are massive, you know. They're, they're huge. You could almost launch surface-to-air missiles from it. Yeah, yeah they're, they're like three foot wide. They're usually solid oak. You can't Absolutely. move them, you know. But, yeah, I, I like the idea of a thinner – so maybe we should call it like a note stand rather than a lecture. Yeah, I, I like that, a note stand. There we are. We've created a term of art for, for speakers <laughs> everywhere. Don't use a lectern. Have a note stand. Very good. Very good. Any final little bits of advice? Any, anything you've learned over the last few years, Graeme, with politicians that would help our listeners, do you think? I believe that the words that we say and the way that we say them are so important that we should never, ever completely rely on memory alone. Even if you don't have anything in your hand, I believe that whether it's a politician or a chief executive, he should always have at least a card a six by four or a, or a four by two card that's either in his pocket, maybe in his hand or maybe on a note stand with a few brief words on it that he can refer to, not on a regular basis during the course of his speech, but almost as a driver's airbag that he can look at if something goes wrong, if someone faints in the audience or if the slide crashes down or <laughs> if the set suddenly falls apart like Theresa May had to experience once. 
always have yeah. some form of notes to refer to just in case because your words are too important to leave to the chance of your memory suddenly malfunctioning. Fantastic advice. So, Graham, how do people find out about you and what you do if they want to get in touch? Well, I'm available through my website, which is www.grahamdavis.co.uk, and it's the Welsh spelling of Davis, I-E-S. Thank you so much. So, Graham Davis, it's wonderful to chat and... With only a few days to go to the election, I'm sure we'll be texting each other in the next few days a little bit of banter as we do. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for being on and thanks for your honesty and I've learnt loads. Thank you so much, Graham. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with your host, Lee Jackson. If you'd like to know more about Lee's work as a motivational keynote speaker and presentation coach visit his website at leejackson.biz that's leejackson.biz